Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. So, Lord, we pray that you would reveal the truth of your word in such a way that you would change our values. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Something happens when you read the Bible. Not when you have the Bible read to you. Not when you have the Bible explained to you. Stuff happens then. But something happens when you read the Bible. And the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, opens understanding of his word to you. He knows who you are. He knows where you need to be pushed. He knows how much you can be pushed. He knows how much you can receive. And so when you go and say, Lord, give me something today. Give me somebody to share it with. He will be faithful in both of those things. And so you should come to the Bible every day expecting, when you read your chapter, expecting, number one, that he's going to give you something. Perhaps something that you just need to be reminded of again. But quite oftentimes, something that you've never really seen something you've never really considered, and he's revealing his truth. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to reveal the truth of God's word. Okay, And so when you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, when you believe, the Bible says that the Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. And we say to ourselves, well, then we should, how about we use it? It's like getting a present for the holiday, Hanukkah present, and you never unwrap it. And if you do, you're like, oh, that's... Kind of mysterious. I'm going to place it over there. Just go about my life because someday maybe I'll get to figuring out what's that. And what the Bible says is, hey, listen, we should be in the word and trust that this Holy Spirit, which has been given to you when you believe that the job is to reveal the truth of his word to you. And that's why it's important that we be in the word every day. And another reason is because there's a lot of people who come along and they claim to speak on behalf of the Lord. And you could be convinced if you don't know the word of the Lord. And so we want to be people who know the word of the Lord so that when we hear a teaching and somebody goes, oh, no, this is the truth, because for hundreds of years, people have believed this way. This is the tradition. And we say, well, this may be your tradition, but that just means that for hundreds of years, you've been wrong. You understand? And Yeshua in today's chapter is going to cover that very same thing. Defilement comes from within. So in Matthew chapter 15, it begins this. And then the scribes in the Pharisees or the Pirushim, which in Hebrew means the separate ones. They were different from the Sadikim. Sadikim means the righteous ones. The Sadikim or the Sadducees, as your Bible may say, they controlled mostly worship in Jerusalem and in the temple. They had a lot of power, but it was mostly concentrated around Jerusalem because they controlled the temple worship. But quite frankly, the majority of the power and influence in the lives of the people was not in the Sadikim, but was in the Pirushim, because they highly lifted up the words of the prophets. Whereas the Sadikim kind of pushed down the words of the prophets. They sort of downplayed it. Why? Because when you listen to the words of the prophets, the words of the prophets were basically railing against the fathers of the Sadikim, saying those who were controlling the worship here in Jerusalem are bad shepherds. You shouldn't follow them. And so they're not going to lift up the words, even though the the prophets were right and they were proven right, they still kind of like don't want to bring it up. See what I'm saying? If you're in the South, Southern people don't want to bring up the idea of slavery. Even though they were wrong and they were proven wrong, they still don't really want to talk about it. And yet it's still always on their minds. Not as much slavery, but the Civil War in that respect. And so the idea is, is that the Pirushim, they did lift up the words of the prophets. 
And so they did believe in things like the resurrection of the dead. They did believe in things like a coming Messiah, whom one who who would come and take up the sins of the people. But they didn't understand fully what all of that was about. I'm just telling you who we're talking about. We talked about scribes being experts of the law last week. But then we also talked about the fact that a scribe also is a term which referred to what we would think of as a seminarian or somebody who was a a yeshiva student. And so therefore, oftentimes at the very beginning of the Gospels, you see Yeshua speaking directly to the scribes. And then when they come back and they can't answer him, then you start to see the scribes showing up with who? With their teachers. Okay. And so at this point, you can figure out that at this point now you have scribes and pirushim. You have some who are students, you have some who are experts in the law, and then you have some who are rabbis, as it were. And that's who is talking. If you understand who they are, then you understand from where their questions come and what it is that ultimately that they're trying to get out. Does that make sense? He says, and then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Yeshua, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Okay? When you go to Israel today, and you go into the restroom, if you're a guy, I don't know how it is in the women's room, and and you should find that to be of great comfort. Not familiar with, I have ideas as to what happens in there. I think there's like uh, couches and things because they're always going in pairs, these women, to the restrooms. And, but I just don't know because I've never been in there. You go in the men's room and then there's chained usually to the faucet. There's a strange looking pitcher that has two handles on it. And uh, I had I had not, I didn't grow up in an orthodox home or anything like that. I had no idea what's this pitcher for and I definitely... Didn't want to drink out of it because I didn't know what it was. But it, here's this picture with two handles. They said, well, there's a way to wash your hands. The Orthodox wash their hands in a certain way. They, you know, they, I'm not going to get into the mechanics of it, but the idea is, you know, you wash with one and then you wash with the other and then you're out of there. It's still a big deal how you wash your hands, even in Israel today. And even here, in, I'm sure in, in LA, you know, where you have, whenever you're in the Orthodox culture, washing your hands is, is a big deal. And part of that is because of this idea, the Jewish idea, that every man is a prophet and a priest in his own home. And every Shabbat, you have the candles and you have the bread and and you basically have the basic elements there on Shabbat. And so every man's table is considered to be his altar. Has anybody ever heard of this idea? This is a very common idea in Jewish culture. And there were very specific ways that the priests could offer, uh, could serve before the Lord. And when the priests went before the Lord, one of the things that Moses set up in the tabernacle and was also placed into the temple was a basin from which to wash. So you go in and you wash, you wash your hands before you serve. And so traditionally then, you abstract the idea of what is specifically for priests And you abstract that idea into everyday life and says, well, if a man is a priest in his own home, therefore what is required of priests should be required of a man. So therefore you wash in the same way as a priest. Okay? It's a person's abstraction of what the Lord commanded a specific people doing a specific task, and now it's been transferred to a culture. And now that 
understanding, which has now become tradition, is now being challenged, not even in our modern times, but even in the days of Yeshua. You see? And Jeremiah 8, 8 through 10 says this, How can we say that we are wise, for we have the law of the Lord? Hey, we're wise. We have the Lord's Torah. When actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely. This is an accusation that the Lord says to the people, and not just the people, but to the religious leaders of the days of Jeremiah. How can you say that we're wise because we have the Torah and we're the ones who are supposed to be dispensing the Torah to it because your scribes have dealt falsely with the Torah? He says the wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I'll give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners from the least to the greatest, all the greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike. That's Jeremiah 8, 8 through 10. Jeremiah 2, 13 says this, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, crack cisterns that cannot hold water. Ezekiel 14.3 says this, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and they have put sinful stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I be consulted by them at all? Pretty harsh accusations, wouldn't you think? The scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Yeshua saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? And Yeshua said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? You know, all the way back in Genesis, Bereshit, you have Adam and Eve in the garden. And Satan, the great serpent, comes to question Eve. And when he comes to question Eve, how is he questioning her? He's questioning her on her knowledge of the word of the Lord. But evil, as we talked last week, always presents the truth in a negative light. So he comes to her and he says, didn't the Lord say we can't eat from all these trees? And she's like, oh, no, we can we can eat from any of these trees except for that one. Or or even we, we can't even touch it. But the Lord never said you can't touch it. For all we know, you could touch it. You can lean on it, build a tree house in it. Who knows? What is the thing that you can't do? You can't eat of the fruit of it. But what did she do? She did something which is very common in our culture. She built a fence around the Torah. Have you ever heard of this idea, building a fence around the Torah? Which means this, if the Torah says that you can't do this, well then let's say that you can't do this. Therefore, if we transgress this, that's okay because the Torah says this. You see what I'm saying? So they start to build walls around. And the moment that you do it, you get one millimeter away from Torah and what have you done? You've now inserted the commandments of men. And in that is where he got her. And in that is where he'll get you. And so what's important for us is to know the word of the Lord. That's why I'm saying, read it. I don't have to teach it to you. The Ruach HaKodesh will teach it to you. And if you have a question, come and ask. And let's discuss this question. Because we want to be people who know the word. And we don't go to the left or to the right of it. But we stand in it. We don't have to build fences around us in order to protect us. Because in that fence, in that space between the law and our fence, is free game for the enemy to come in. So now what happens is, is that while the Torah had commanded that men wash their hand who were priests who were serving before the Lord, now all of a sudden, 
If you were eating and there's not water and you're, you know, see what I'm saying? Now all of a sudden what's happening is this. They're trying to confront him off of the commandments of men. And this is a problem. He answers, he says, why do you also transgress the commandment of God? What is he saying? You know what's more important than transgressing against the commandments of men, the tradition of the elders? Transgressing against the commandment of the Lord. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit that you might have received from me is a gift to God, then you need not honor your father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Here's the scenario. I know that it's my job as a son in order to support you, mom and dad, when you get past the age where you can support yourself. I know that's my duty as a son. But there's a technicality in that I'm a priest. And so instead of me supporting you, just know that whatever gift that I would give you, consider that to be a gift on your behalf to the Lord because I'm doing the Lord's work. Do you understand? You understand what he's saying? In modern day times, say, listen, you know, we're living in the United States and there's a and there's a tax deduction for people who give money to charitable organizations and religious institutions. So here's what I want to do. Instead of me supporting you by, let's say, $1,000 a month, I'm not going to give you that money, but I'm going to let you deduct that money from your taxes at the end of the year as if you gave $1,000, as if you received $1,000. So I am giving you $1,000, but I'm giving it to you in the form of a tax deduction and not actually giving you the money out of my pocket. I mean, from an accounting standpoint, that makes sense. And in essence, if the Lord is the great controller, then what you're saying is, is that, you know, the Lord will deduct it. So anything that you would have received from me, consider to be as if that was a gift from you to the Lord. <laughs> and that's how convoluted that tradition can get. By the way, Yeshua was not against all tradition, because you see him doing traditional things, even to the point where, as we learned last week, he cast demons out of a person, and then he says, don't tell anybody, but go directly to the priest and offer what Moses prescribed, because he's sending a very clear signal that I'm not starting a new religion here, but rather what I'm doing is I am doing what I was prophesied to do which is to make all things right. And let that be your testimony to the priest, that you have been healed, and here's what Moses prescribed. He also said, I have not come to abolish the law, but what? But to fulfill it. And so in no way was he doing anything which was contrary to the Torah. But what he's doing is he's making a distinction between tradition and the Torah. And whenever tradition didn't jive with the Torah, he points it out. It's one thing when my men transgress the tradition of the elders. It's another thing when you transgress the commandment of God. He says, Isaiah did well to prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If today you sit down and you say, You know, I'm going to spend my time, I'm going to yeshiva. The majority of your time is not necessarily studying the Torah, the Tanakh, but in weighing through the Talmud, Mishnah, Gemara, because in this is the majority of our tradition. And that's why we see that it's also a very scary thing. Oftentimes people, our people, come to a saving knowledge of the Messiah, and they say, you know, I want to go back and and, and sit under the teaching of the rabbis. 
But I say this is a very dangerous water to get into. Why? Because if you don't have the right hermeneutic, that is the way that you approach the scripture, then scriptures which clearly teach of who the Messiah should be and what should he do and how should he suffer. Scriptures like Psalm 22, scriptures like Isaiah 53, scriptures like Micah 5.2. Where's he going to be born? Who's he going to be? What's he going to do? If you talk to them about those scriptures, they will never say, you know what? Now, after reading this, I think Yeshua is the Messiah. So you're going to be always learning, but never arriving. Why? Well, because both Jeremiah and Matthew, Isaiah, these aren't words necessarily from the Brit Hadashah, from the New Testament. They're quoting the words of the prophets in the words of those great theologians, the who. Meet the new boss. What? Same as the old boss. And so today, separate yourself from the Tanakh and teaching instead the vain interpretations of men. Once again, I'm not against tradition or even Jewish tradition. But whenever it doesn't jive with the Torah, well, then you have to call it out for what it is. And this is the problem that you have. These people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Verse 9, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Proverbs 4, 3. When I was a son with my father, tender and precious to my mother, he taught me and said, your heart must hold on to my words and keep my commands alive. Get wisdom and understanding. Do not forget or turn away from the words of my mouth. Don't abandon wisdom. She will watch over you. Love her. She will guard you. Wisdom is supreme, so get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. If you embrace her, she will honor you. And she will place a garland of grace on your head and you will, and she will give you a crown of beauty. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says this, Do not worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition and thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Messiah Yeshua. Isaiah, uh, Psalm 1 says this, Happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of the sinners, or join in the group of mockers. What am I getting at? Whenever you depart from the word of the Lord, well-intended as it may be, you're accepting the counsel of the wicked. And when you do that, when you start walking in the counsel of the wicked, not my term, the terms of David in Psalm 1, the very first lines of the very first song in the book of Psalms, do you think the Lord wants to send a clear message? We are to be people of his word, and we should be able to distinguish between the real word and the fake word. So we should be able to divide it and parse it, take it apart, put it back together again. We should be as the Bereans were in the days of Rabbi Saul, or known as the Apostle Paul, where he goes to town and he's sharing from the scriptures, he's sharing who is Messiah, who's he supposed to be, and then he draws a case to say that the Messiah is Yeshua. And the Bible says that the men of Berea then would take the words that he said and they would weigh that against their knowledge of the scripture. So they were open-minded enough to hear an argument that seemed foreign to them, but they were biblically based enough to understand whether or not it was true or whether or not it was false. That's who we have to be. Because otherwise, you're going to stand there with your mouth open and your tongue hanging out when you hear this. Hi, we're from Jehovah's Witness. We want to talk to you about what we believe in. 
Hi, we're the Mormons. We want to talk to you about what we believe in. You understand? And that's who we have to be. People say, oh, I can't even talk to those people. They know so much about the Bible. No, they don't. If they knew about the Bible, then they would understand it rightly and they would have salvation. But they don't. And that's who we have to be. And hopefully that's a course that we're setting out on here as we're reading a chapter of it every day. Including the Brit Hadashah, if you read the New Testament, uh, what am I saying? If you read the Bible every day, it takes you about three years to read the entire Bible. And then when you round the horn, that is when you finish the Bible, and then you go back again to Bereshit for the second time, it blows your mind. Because all of a sudden it starts to come together like laces in a shoe. This goes into this eyelet. Oh, wow, that's bizarre because this goes into, the, oh, wait a second. This goes into, oh, I see. And the two come together and you realize, as he says, behold, the volume of the scroll is written of me. And you don't necessarily get that if you just simply attend and hear some guy preach at you. Ravi Zacharias, one of the great apologists of our day, says, you know, the problem in America is not that there's not uh, good preaching. There may actually be better preaching today than ever in the history of the world. It's not that people don't have access to good preaching. People have greater access to good preaching than ever in the history of this planet. The problem is they don't have value for it. And where do we get our values from? Well, they say that you get your values from the five people that you're around the most. You become like the five people that you're around the most. And we're supposed to get our values not from the rabbi and not from the congregation. You're supposed to get your values from your parents, <clears throat> which we'll get to in a moment. Isaiah 29:13 and 14 says this, Because these people approach me with their mouths and honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and their worship consists of man-made rules learned by rote. Therefore, I will again confound these people with wonder after wonder. The wisdom of the wise men will vanish, and the understanding of the perceptive will be hidden. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. You know, we recited the Shema earlier, but immediately following the Shema, what do you see? These words which I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. That's your very first commandment as a parent. Should it be just once a week, we take Shabbat, and then we go and we listen, we sit shul, and we listen to the teaching? No. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. What is it that the Lord wants to be on our hearts from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to bed? When you're working, when you're talking, and teach these things diligently to your children. It's His Word. And the success of a family becomes the success of a community, becomes the success of a city and a state and a nation and the world. But it all starts with your personal responsibility. You say, well, Steve, you know, I had horrible parents. My parents were both hell's angels. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, how much horrible could that be? And I wasn't raised with those values. I'm sorry, but okay, well, now you know. You got to be in the word. Every day and pray, seeking the Lord. It's not a thing you do for an hour once a week or maybe twice a week if you go to a Havarah. But this is your life. The Bible says to be ready always to give reason for the hope that is within you. And this is the challenge for you to know his word and to be able to give a defense. I take Krav Maga, which is funny because look at me. I don't look like a tough guy, but I take Krav Maga. And one of the ideas of Krav Maga is a very violent, you know, it's not a sport like, okay, rules and a guy with a striped shirt and a whistle. 
it's 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 actually a very uh, violent, unmitigated fighting style where if a fight lasts longer than five seconds, you have problems. And so, like I said, I'm not a tough guy. I do know that I can defend myself against anybody brandishing a rubber knife very slowly from the right side. Not that high. No, no, not that low. But yeah, right there. That's about the level I'm at. But the philosophy of Krav Maga is attack the attacker. So a man comes at you with a knife, you block and punch at the same time. In that sense, if fighting style were to be put into an evangelistic vernacular, the idea is not just to be defenders of the faith, always retreating, but to be advancers of the faith. Block in advance. Now that sounds violent. I'm not, I'm not advocating violence in any way. But the point is, is that that's the way that we should know the word. Somebody comes at us, not only have we rightly divided the truths, so we understand where this guy stands, but now you turn and you can challenge him. And you see exactly that very same thing. You see, Yeshua does not just answer the question, but he answers the question. It's a very Jewish conversation with another question. Hey, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Oh, yeah, why do you transgress the command of God? What is this? This is a block in advance. Although they weren't going to blows, right? We get this, right? And when he had called the multitude to himself, verse 10, he said to them, hey, listen and understand. It's not what goes into a mouth which defiles a man. It's what come out of a mouth that defiles a man. And if you can understand the literary subtlety, they're talking about what? They're talking about eating. And he turns the idea away from eating and washing hands to the oral Torah, the tradition of the elders. It's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man's mouth. You think that you're clean because you eat only the clean way that you've been taught. And I'm telling you, it's not about this clean way that you've been taught. And in essence, you defile yourself and the whole community by what comes out of your mouth, specifically that which transgresses against the commandment of the Lord. And then his disciples, his Talmudim, if you would, came and they say to him, do you know that the Pharisees are offended when they heard what you say? Do you understand that you're offending the Pharisees by what you say? Listen, we live in a politically correct culture. And in many congregations, especially when we're dealing with with our people, with the Jewish community, sensitivity is very high because so many things in the name of Jesus have been done to our people. And so we understand the sensitivities have to be high. But listen, people don't come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua because of convenience. They come out of desperation. And what the word of the Lord does for both Jews and Gentiles, is it tells us who is God, and it tells us who are you. It presents to us a vast difference between us and our Creator, and a great need that there's a chasm which must be bridged, and that cannot be accomplished by human effort. Even in the days of sacrifices, it was itself grace. Killing the animal didn't really cover your sin, but the Lord says that if you follow my command and you do these things then by his grace, he will say as a substitution that that would atone for your sin. But even in that, there was still grace when by faith we believed the word of the Lord and we acted as he commanded, even though it doesn't seem to make sense that blood of animals could cover sins. And in the same way, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace that we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves, but it's the gift of God. It's not of works 
lest any man should boast about, look how religious I am and look what I've accomplished. Although we do see a lot of that, don't we? Don't ever be afraid of offending people is the point because the gospel is offensive. But it's an offense if somebody would stop and the Lord, everyone here who was a believer at one point was probably offended by the gospel. I know I was to the point that when I actually believed and somebody found out that Steve Wiggins believes in Jesus, that somebody said, it's impossible. Because just a few weeks ago, I heard him arguing against it. And yet the truth came in and the power of the spirit came in at the same time. And I'm just listening and I'm thinking and I'm like, this is the truth. But you know what was happening in the midst of my life at that time? Trauma, by which I realized that I can't save myself. Some people say religion is a crutch. I like what Greg Laurie says. Hey, it's a whole hospital. And you have to come to the point where you're willing to admit that you need to go to the trauma unit. And that could be a crisis of all types. But the point is, is that the gospel is offensive until you believe. And then you realize it's the power of God into salvation. Amen? Amen. Don't be afraid. There are some organizations whose highest goal is to not offend people. The last thing they want to do is say something that somebody might be offended about. And I would say, well, then in that you offend God. How far do you think Isaiah would have got if he was, oh, and I can't offend anybody. I don't want to tell the... And if I tell the truth the way God says to tell the truth, we got problems. Jeremiah, oh, no, no, they kicked him out. And what does he do? He says to his scribe, you ought to read Jeremiah 45 someday, blow your mind. He says to his scribe, Baruch, right? Baruch, what blessed. How blessed am I? I'm Jeremiah's scribe. He's kicked out. He's a byword in Jerusalem. They want to kill him and he's in hiding. The word of the Lord has now come to him. And he gives the scroll to me. Hey, go to Zedekiah and give him my word. Why? Because I've been kicked out. Why? Because they want to kill me. Why? Because I shared them the word of the Lord. Should have named me Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed from me. Don't name me Baruch. But Jeremiah 45 says this. Hey, you seek a name for yourself. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because everything you see here is going to be torn down. But you keep on keeping on in faith. And everywhere you go, which means, yeah, you're going to be driven out of here too. But everywhere you go, you'll get out with your life. Sometimes we got to cling to Jeremiah 45 because there's people around us who say, did you not know that the Pharisees are offended by the things that you're preaching? And I say, knock yourself out. Take me out. The Lord will raise up another one. Take him out. The Lord will raise up another one. Because he is bent on getting his word out, especially in these days where the times are desperate. And we have a nation which is so quickly and fastly falling away and crumbling Why? Because they've abandoned the word of the Lord and they have nothing to cling to but some shadow of patriotism. Hey, listen, I'm a patriot. I love America, but I love the Lord more. And I love America enough to call it like it is and say, listen, unless there's revival in our land and unless we turn from our wicked ways and we turn to the Lord and we seek him, we're not going to see the healing that our land needs. And listen, there's no revival unless there's a hardcore return to the word of the Lord. And hopefully, as we're reading the word every day, that that's at least what we're doing as a community. I can't be accountable for a nation, but I can be accountable to the ones whom the Lord has given to me for a season to shepherd, as it were. And I'm not into it for your mutton or your wool. I just want to teach you how to read the word because you spend six sevenths of your day away from here anyway. And you better spend it in the word because Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7 is pretty clear. That's how he wants it, not how I want it. So here we are, marching forth. Verse 13, But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind teachers of the blind. 
And if the blind leads the blind, then both will fall into a ditch. And Peter answered and said, explain this parable to us. And so Yeshua said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters into a mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adulterers, fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. It's interesting because in Acts chapter 10, verses 15, after the crucifixion of Yeshua, the resurrection, everybody's kind of decentralized, right? Strike the shepherd and what? Peter is in Joppa, Yafo. He's in Joppa. And he's on the roof of a, of a house of a tanner. And it's the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock. Wow, that was bizarre. Somebody's phone went off and they have a very bizarre ringtone. And uh, this is a good chance to check your phones, by the way. And he sees a vision. And the vision is the Lord is a sheet being lowered, and there's all types of animals, unclean. Very controversial topic between the Jewish community and the community of Messiah. Also a controversial topic between the church and the community of Messiah. That's exactly what does that mean? Does it mean that, hey, now don't have to worry about the word, the laws of kosher? Does it mean that? I don't know. I don't know. Does it mean, no, no, he was just talking about people. Just saying that there was formerly people who you considered to be unclean, but I'm saying that those people are clean. People who have names like Ruth. People who was a Moabitess. People who have names like Tamar, right? Who was a Canaanite woman. People with names like Rehab, right? Who was a prostitute but all whom are in the line of David, whom previously you would have thought, well, I mean, maybe they're somewhere in the very back, maybe in the very back of the Jewish community that they're, okay, there are some foreign women, but not in the line of David. And yet here are all these women, right? Bathsheba, Bathsheba, a woman who we don't know if she was Jewish or not, but if she was, she was married to a Hittite. So formerly... But we have no problem accepting them as righteous people within the nation of Israel. Right? They're in the line of the Messiah. He says to him, what God has made clean, you must not call common. Uh, what God has set apart is holy. In Acts chapter 11, verse 9, same thing. But a voice answered from heaven a second time and said, what God has made clean, you must not call common. And so the point being is that this is an idea that Yeshua has already put into Peter's mind. It's not what goes into a mouth which defiles a man, but it's what comes out of a mouth. So he's already preparing him for the day when he's going to call him to go and to speak to Cornelius. And the topic of their discussion is that Cornelius is what you call a God-fearer. He's a Gentile who's probably this close to converting to Judaism. And the Bible outlines him and his love for the Jewish people. And, and, and he's seeking the Lord about the truth. And the Lord says to him, at about this time in a couple of days, there's going to be a guy, he's going to come to your door and he's going to answer the questions that you have. And at the same time as he's talking to him earlier, right? So then Cornelius goes, I don't know who this Peter guy is, but let's send some soldiers down there to go find out this guy, Peter. Now, if you're Peter and you just watched Yeshua be crucified, even though you know that he's risen from the grave because you've spoken with him since, who wants to be crucified still? He's still trying to avoid that idea. So the Lord is already saying, listen, in a moment, there's going to be a knock at the door. 
It's going to be a bunch of Roman soldiers. Number one, don't be afraid because I sent them. Number two, go to where they're going to take you. And number three, they're going to take you into the house of a Roman guy, a soldier who has the power to kill you. But I am working on his heart so that he can receive the truth of the gospel. So I know that previously the Jewish community would consider this man to be unclean and that you shouldn't even go into his home. But I want you to go there. And they're probably going to place something in front of you to eat because that's their custom and they want to be nice. Don't worry about it. Eat it. Because what's more important than food is the soul of a man who's desperately seeking me. And you're the person that I've raised up and I've readied in order to share the truth with him. And right about that time, the sheets, then they have an argument. Oh, no, it's not going to be this way, Lord. And you say, well, who could be so stupid to argue with the Lord? I mean, there's a vision and there's all kinds of stuff that's like, but we do it all the time. Sheet lifts up, and about that time, hey, Peter, there's some guys downstairs want to talk to you, and they're carrying spears. He goes with them. Not only that, he takes others with him. So others go with him, and they're watching, and he shares the gospel, and they believe, and the Ruach HaKodesh falls on them. And those who are with him are astonished, because even the Holy Spirit is falling on the goyim. Peter answered and says to him, explain this parable to us. Are you also still without understanding and you don't understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach as it is eliminated, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile a man. And then Yeshua went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman from Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Oh, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. I would say slight demon possession would be severe. She uses an interesting term. We talked about it in Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Yeshua, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Son of David, David, the shepherd of Israel, come to gather the lost sheep of Israel. Son of Abraham, right? Who was Abraham? He was a dude. He was a guy from Ur of the Chaldees, a Gentile, as it were, who heard the word of the Lord and believed. The Bible says that his faith was counted as righteousness. The Lord said, follow me. Lech lecha, right? This great calling, this great come follow me. And he does. So here's a Canaanite woman. I wonder what would have happened if she would have said, Yeshua, son of Abraham. Perhaps the conversation would have gone differently. But she says to him, Yeshua, son of David. Now, how does a Canaanite woman, a Syrophoenician woman from Tyre and Sidon, how does she even know the concept of son of David? How does she even know to cry out to him in that way? We can only assume that she's lived in some proximity with the Jewish community and has overheard either in private conversations in the marketplace, or maybe she was just kind of present as Yeshua is doing some type of miracle, and then she's going, okay, that was weird. And then some Jewish person turns to her and says, yeah, this is this is Yeshua, Ben David. She's like, okay, I don't know what that is, but I want to call out to this son of David guy. However it is, she had enough knowledge in order to cry out to him as she had heard people around her obviously crying out to him, or at least speaking of him. 
She doesn't have the whole picture. She doesn't understand how this works. She doesn't understand about the history of Israel. She doesn't understand about the Red Sea and 40 years in the desert. And she doesn't understand the stories of David and Goliath. And she doesn't understand Saul persecuting David. And she doesn't understand that David was a shepherd boy. All she knows is that when you cry out to the son of David, there's healing. She's got a scrap of knowledge. Just a crumb. But sometimes that's enough to hang your faith on. Some people say, I should get my life right before I come to the Lord, you know, clean myself up. And we say, just come as you are, because the Lord cleans his fish after he catches them. As the man who says, Yeshua, I believe, now help me with my unbelief. He is the son of David. Ezekiel 34, verse 17 says, the Lord God says to you, my flock, I'm going to judge between one sheep and another, between rams and male goats. The Lord makes a distinction. John 10:16 says, but I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. This understanding or this idea that salvation is exclusively for the Jewish people is not biblical. It's not that it's not New Testament. It's not a Tanakh idea because once you get to Isaiah 56, and he's talking about the eunuchs and the Gentiles who believe and I will their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar and I will give them a name better than sons and daughters and all of these things. The Lord has always been open to anyone of any faith who would believe. And one of the greatest lies is this idea that you that is put forth that there is this Noahide covenant for which the Gentiles go into a special bubble over there. Just move on out of the way. But the real truth story is that the promises are for Israel, that is, those who were born who are Jewish. But that's not what the narrative of the Tanakh says. This is an easy way for the people of Chabad to say, oh, you're Gentile and you want to learn about God? Okay, here's the place for you over here. Just don't talk about Jesus. We're going to tell you about how there's no way that he's the Messiah. You have a covenant that's your covenant. Leave our covenant alone. But Yeshua says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them in also that they will listen and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Yes, he is David, the shepherd of Israel, who's come to gather the lost sheep of Israel. But at the same time, he's also son of Abraham, the father of all who would by faith believe. And it would be counted to them as righteousness. Salvation has always and will always be by grace through faith. Galatians 6.10 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work For the good of all, especially to those who belong of the household of faith. Matthew 7, 6. Well, we'll get to there in a moment. She says, have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. But he answered her not a word, perhaps because she calls out to the shepherd of Israel. Here she's not from Israel. And his disciples came and they urged, saying, send this lady away, for she cries out after us. You got to love her persistence. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Because this is the role of the son of David. And then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Not just Lord, help me, but Lord, help me. I heard what you just said. You've just come for the lost sheep of Israel. And I'm not of Israel, but I'm a lost sheep nonetheless. Lord, help me. And an interesting thing, she worshipped him. Last week we spoke of the deity of the Messiah and how this is not a New Testament idea, but is throughout the Torah, throughout the Tanakh. Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you'll be small among the clans of Judah, but one will come out from you 
who will be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from everlasting. And other verses which would support that idea. She come and she worshipped him. Everyone else in the Bible whom somebody worshipped unrightly, either they were a pagan who was just like Nebuchadnezzar or somebody, yeah, man, worship me. But if they were righteous, they said, don't worship me, I'm just a man. Don't fall before me, I'm just an angel. Worship God alone. And yet she worshipped him. And you don't see a rebuke. Oh, no, I'm just a man. I'm just God's messenger. I'm just a good teacher. I'm just a great prophet. But don't worship me. You see no rebuke there. Why? Because he's worthy of worship. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Yeshua, the Messiah, is Lord and Lord of all. <clears throat> so she came and she worshipped him and said, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Matthew 7, 6 says this, don't give what is holy to the dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, for they will trample them with their feet and they will turn and they will tear you to pieces. In most cases, you give the gospel to the Gentiles and they're going to do that very thing. But for those who are truly seeking the Lord, perhaps is a different situation. Matthew 7, 27 says this, and he said to her, allow the children to be satisfied first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I've come first for the what? For the Jew. And then to the Gentile. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Once again, the determination for salvation is not by our perfection or by our works, but rather by our direction, which is our faith. We're not perfect. That's why we need salvation. So salvation does not come by our faithfulness, but rather that the object of our faith is perfect. And by his grace, he saves us when by faith we believe that he has made atonement on our behalf. Are we all smoking the same pipe here? Are we on the same page? Because I'm teaching college level stuff. And yet the most simple of us should be able to believe and receive it. I've come first for the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It's not good that I would take the children's food and give it to the little dogs. And by the way, in Hebrew, the word for Gentile and the word for dogs is very similar. So oftentimes in a derogatory way, they're used synonymously. He's not using the word for ravenous wolves or, or vicious dogs, but the idea of a puppy. And she said, yes, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Hey, listen, I may be a Gentile, but I picked up enough crumbs from around you and from around these believers to recognize that you're some guy called the son of David and that salvation is only in you. Now take the culture which is following him around, looking at the next miracle, waiting for the next sign, waiting for the next reason to trip him up, waiting for the next reason to say, yeah, yeah, that's why we, not right there is why we shouldn't believe in him. They have the Torah. They have the prophets. They have the traditions. And he's standing right there. This woman has none of it. But she sees the power of the miracles. She sees the testimony of the people. She doesn't have any of that stuff, and yet she believes, which should put us all to shame, yeah? She says, yes, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Yeshua answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And her daughter was healed in that very hour. It says, and Yeshua departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. 
And then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Yeshua's feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, and the maimed made whole, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Bueno, this is good. But that being said, it's one thing to heal physical affirmities. But guess what? Every person that was healed by Yeshua eventually did what? They're dead. Otherwise, they'd be on Larry King. Larry King live, talking to some man named Emmaus, who was healed by Jesus 2,000 years ago. Tell us, how was it that day? Well, I was fishing and... uh No, they're not on Larry King live. Because the ultimate healing which he comes to give, and the purpose of healing... Yes, there is compassion on those who were hurting and who needed to be healed. And there were people who needed to be encouraged. And there were people who even on Shabbat needed to be freed up so that they could have shalom. So they needed restoration. But the greater purpose for him coming was to heal a greater sickness. And all of these signs are sign of a deeper issue, which is sin in the world and its effects in a culture and in people and over history. And he came to bring a healing which was greater than just, I'm no longer lame or now I can see. And I wonder where your faith would be if Jesus healed you. Yeshua comes down and touches you and heals you today. But what happens if five years from now you get a report back that you have cancer and then all of a sudden there is no healing? There's a healing which transcends this world. And those healings at the time were for a sign so that people could see and so that they could believe. But there's a greater healing which has to be received. And that is when we make the decision to recognize that, yes, Yeshua is the Messiah. And I put my faith and my trust in his atoning work for my salvation and in him alone. Have you made that choice? Now, Yeshua and his disciples called his disciples to himself. And he says, I have compassion on the multitude because they've come and they've continued with me for three days and have had nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And so. His disciples said to him, well, where are we going to get enough blood, uh, blood? Where are we getting enough bread in this wilderness to feed such a great multitude? And I like what he says. Well, how many loaves do you have? Oftentimes you look at this miracle and you think, you know, Jesus fed, Yeshua fed 5,000, fed 4,000. But it's interesting how the whole thing worked. What does he say? Well, what do you have? And oftentimes we're like, Lord, we need revival in our land and we need to see people turn back to the Lord. And, you know, these people are hungry for the truth of the gospel. Oh, well, how much truth of the gospel do you have? Oh, not much at all, quite frankly. That's really the rabbi's job. No. How about you take the little that you have and you let me bless it and then you start sharing it. And you're going to be amazed at how many hungry people are fed when you submit your lack to my greatness. And you let me bless what you don't have. And you're going to be amazed to see how this happens. You say, well, yeah, here's another New Testament story. What do we care about? We're Jewish. Second Kings 4, 42 through 44. A man from Baal Shalisha came to the man of God with a sack full of loaves of barley and bread from the first bread of the harvest. And Elisha said, give it to the people to eat. But Elisha's attendant asked, what? Am I going to set 20 loaves before a 100 men? Now, when you think of a loaf in the day of Elisha, it's not like the Wonder Bread. You know what I'm saying? It's not like the white bread you get at Super Target. A loaf? We're going to set 20 loaves in front of a 100 men? 
Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and they will have some left over. Verse 44, so he gave it to them as the Lord had promised, and they ate and they had left over. This is not just a New Testament idea. What is he saying? I'm coming in the power of Elijah. I'm coming in the power of Elisha. They were predecessors to someday the Messiah will come. And now I'm doing those very things that even they did. How many more signs do you need before you believe is the idea. Exodus 16, 2 through 4. There's a problem with bread and the lack of it, right? The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate all the bread that we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people are going to go out each day and they're going to gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Hey, we're in the wilderness, Yeshua. And these people need to eat. I mean, the answer should have been inherent in their knowledge of the scripture, right? Oh, we're in, this is just like the days of Moses. Let's check this out. Hey, Yeshua, how about some manna, right? Well, it's just like in the days of Elijah, Elisha, right? Because we've probably all read this story. Hey, Yeshua, right? Remember, we only have like 20 loaves, so do the thing that we know you're going to do because we believe. No, they come to him with disbelief and they come to him with a mindset of scarcity. They're always looking at what they don't have. You can look at this motley group of scattered people in front of me. I look at you every week. I love you, but we're very varied, right? We got Hispanics. We have People from Israel who are here. We have people from Cherokee people. We got just garden variety Gentiles. We got all kinds of people, guys from Iran. We got all kinds of people here. And we say, how could we affect Irvine? Don't look at it from your scarcity, the lack of your resources. Look at it from your abundance, the great wealth of resources that we have by the power of the Spirit in order to do great things. And then you'll see victories like guys like Gideon saw in their day. And you'll see them in your day. His disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in the wilderness? Well, let's see Moses. Let's see Elisha. Whoa, I don't know. What do you have? They said seven. I'm, the emphasis is mine. That's what my kids would say. And we got a few little fish. Like we have seven loaves and a few. They're not even big. Really, think of it. Yeshua, there's one of you, there's 12 of us, that's 13 of us. Really, there's not even enough for us. And I like what he said. So he commanded the multitude to sit on the ground. Later, you ought to read this set against the backdrop of Psalm 23 as he makes them lie down in green pastures and he nourishes them and he teaches them beside still waters and he restores their soul. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and he gave thanks. And he broke them and he gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave them to the multitude. Hey, who fed the multitude? The disciples. Hey, Yeshua, we have a problem. We have scarcity. Oh, no, no. I'm going to bless it. You'll have abundance. Now take what I gave you and then you go do the work. People come to me. Hey, we need a ministry where we're going to do this. Hey, Steve, we need a ministry in Shuva where we're going to do this. I say, great. That sounds like the Lord's given you a vision. You go for it. And then I never hear from him again. Hey, if the Lord's convicted you about going out and ministering to people and sharing the gospel, do it. But they might spit on me. They might. So go out and be faithful to whatever it is the Lord showed you. Well, I don't have much Bible knowledge. Well, you got Matthew 1 to 15. Start sharing that. 